Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we've got our first ever returning guest. Josh Malaman is back, only six months after his last appearance, which is just further proof of the man's insane productivity, but it's also testament to how eager I am to talk about Josh's latest book. Ghoul and the Cape is his magnum opus so far. It's the truly epic tale of two men fleeing a unique evil across the entire landmass of the United States. It clocks in at 700 pages, nearly £5 in weight, and it combines every possible genre you can think of. Yeah, like I said, it's epic. Just like Ghoul and the Cape, Josh and I go on our own journey this week without ever leaving our desk chairs. We talk about the great American novel and Lord of the Rings, about beat poets and hopeless wanderers and Don Quixote, and, and we talk about why this book is the start of Act 2 in Josh's writing life. But most of all, we talk about the endless, pivotal, crucial importance of awe in our lives. We laugh, we cry, literally, we have a good time. So come with us, west to wonderment. Let's talk scared. Well, Josh Malaman, welcome back to Talking Scared. Oh, man. I hear I'm the uh, first repeat guest, which is like an honor and a half. I am very glad to be here. Hello. You are, yeah, the the first returning guest. I mean, that is largely due to the fact that I like you, (laughs) but also because it's impossible to go more than a few months without a new Josh Malaman book hitting shelves. So I can see this being a recurring thing every few months you come back for the latest update. That's the goal right there. If I can maintain (laughs) that for the next like 40 years, then I did it. Essentially just become co-host, yeah. (laughs) I mean, we spoke in May last time, and that was for the release of Goblin, which if any new listeners are joining us, that was episode 39. Go back and check that out. But but how have the six months since then treated you, Josh? How are you? Uh, great. Um, Allison, who is my fiance, her and I just went up to this almost mythic, prestigious uh, arts school in northern Michigan. Like everyone from down here has always heard about Interlochen. I mean, even the name Interlochen, right? Mm-hmm. Even the name. And we, you always hear that all like these, I think Lady Gaga went there, like all these like from all over the country, these super artistically talented kids, teenagers, they go up there. So I was asked to come do um, a speech uh, about creative writing and to do a reading. And Allison and I drove up there and it, it was unbelievable, man. I went into this, I had to give like an hour long speech and I went into it without like, without any notes, without any prep, without any, anything. And I didn't quite realize that till I was standing in front of everyone talking. And it struck me like, wow, dude, you've come a long way, man. Like I remember um, I used to have stage fright to like the point of like knees buckling to like talk to like a room, you know, even a room full of like high schoolers about writing and I would have to map everything out and blah, blah, blah. And here I go to this like school, walk up to the podium and just started talking for an hour. And it was, oh. yeah, it was incredible. Was it well received? Yeah. These kids are like smart kids and their questions were very, you know, like, like for example, I, I brought up um something being optioned and, you know, immediately a hand shoots up. Could you explain what optioned means to us, Mr. <laughs> Mallerman? And I'm like, yes, yes, I can, you know, like stuff like that. And whether you mean to or not, you kind of use a different voice when you're talking to a 16 year old than maybe you and I do with each other. And that, that difference 
that was evaporated immediately where I was like, wait a minute, these kids are, these kids are smart. <laughs> and, well, and I just ended up talking to them like exactly like I would you. Well, congratulations. Like I said, you, you've hit the big time then. Yes. If you can give a speech without any notes for an hour, you're doing something right. Well, take that energy and then invest it wholeheartedly into your wedding speech when it happens. <laughs> yeah, that's the one that really matters. Good, Good thinking. <laughs> um, right. So when we last spoke, I said kind of in passing at the end of the conversation, how much I enjoyed your novel, Unbury Carol. And I said I loved it because of its kind of freewheeling, anarchic tone. And you said, boy, do I have the book for you coming out soon. And, and that book was your latest, Ghoul and the Cape. Now, at the time, you couldn't tell me much about it, except that it was a kind of mammoth piece of work. Well, now here we are. Ghoul and the Cape is imminent. I believe it's got a December release for those who've pre-ordered it. And yes, yes, it is massive. And and by God, it's given us a lot to talk about. I've got notes, as I said to you off air, that would take us through to tomorrow. So well, this will be, you know, a light touch on this 700-page behemoth. But can you tell us a little bit about Ghoul and the Cape? Because there's no way on earth I'm trying to attempt to synopsize this novel. Yeah, it's it's not an easy one, is it, to to, uh, to give a brief on. Um, it's really not. I will say this to the listeners. It is a, a limited edition, uh, a thousand copies coming out through Earthling. Whether or not um, it, there's an ebook or it goes wider later, no plans yet for that, but we'll see. Um, I do plan on doing the audio book myself. I've been reading it to Allison, um, and I, it just strikes me that unless I had the exact right, you know, man or woman, because obviously there's people that can do it, but unless I had the exact right one to do this one, I think this one's probably on me. And so that I'm going to get on eventually. But for now, there's a thousand copies available through Earthling. And the book is about, ooh, um, hard, hard to do this without giving certain things away, but let's say that two seemingly homeless eccentrics, <laughs> drunk to be sure, uh, two men are attempting to um, outrun what one of them um, calls a celestial entity called the Knot. Uh, the one of them, the Cape, claims that this entity is uh, eating America uh, from east to west. And will you, ghoul, come with me to outrun it? You should come with me because it's coming. It's in an elite you too. You should come with me. And if you do come with me, uh, as as a uh, incentive, there will be money for you. Uh, you know, when we when we finally outpace this thing for your companionship, there will be money for you. And so, Ghoul, who is maybe slightly more skeptical than the well, he is more skeptical than the Cape, agrees. He has nothing else, literally nothing else going on in his life but booze. And he's like, uh, you know, um, there's something about this guy, the Cape, that uh, it seems to inspire everyone he encounters. And Ghoul goes with him. So so begins. Um, a fairly um, peaked exit from New York City as the two of them are fleeing what the Cape says is Ghost Star, uh, one of the agents of the Knot coming to eat America. And and as crazy as that may sound to listeners, you're right. You're 100% right. It is, it is a crazy premise, but it also is an absolutely, or was for me, a phenomenal diving board from which, like a slingshot almost, um, uh, through which the entire rest of the novel is told. Yeah, that doesn't even begin to dip a toe into 
the, the kind of the events of this novel. Uh, but that, that, as you say, the diving board for this conversation as, as well as the as, as the plot of the story. Um, to start with a broad question, but one that kind of really grabbed my attention. I've seen you refer to this novel elsewhere as the start of the second act of your writing life. What does that mean exactly? Wow, I can't believe that you you've like caught that. I think I've said that in like a couple interviews. Um, I feel it's time to be a little more unchained than I was even before. I feel like Mallory sort of indicated a sort of like curtains closing on act one. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is that it was a sequel of of an existing book in in what I had written so far, right? Mm-hmm. And so it kind of felt like the sort of coda, the uh, character, Mallory, stepping out on stage and bowing to the audience or whatever, and then the curtains closed. That's the end of act one. Now begins act two. And and if, you know, I don't expect every, I don't expect Ghoul in the Cape to be the most, you know, sane of what follows and then everything to be crazier and crazier. But at the same time, I do find myself like, hey, let's take stock of everything we've learned so far, what we know, not just about writing, but about living and being a writer and being an artist and being a lover and being a man. And let's start to intentionally infuse your books with, with these things rather than I think that sometimes in the early, early, early um, writing the first few books, there was more like the conceit or the idea was enough for me to get me through a novel. And if I read, you know, cause like, I would watch like Twilight Zone episodes and I'd be like, eh, there's some character development, but this idea is just screaming, you know, it's amazing. Right. And so I was real enamored with that. And I still am enamored with the idea, the conceit, but I feel like it's okay. Uh, I feel like it's like, it's time. Okay. To now let's expand. Um, and that doesn't mean let's get heavy handed. That doesn't mean let's get so emotional. That just means let's be aware of what we're saying with each book. And I think that, like one more example of what I mean with bird box, people would ask me, you know, uh, is this a metaphor for when someone, you know, looks out at the world, it drives them crazy. And I'd be like, ah, that wasn't on my mind when I was writing it. And now I'm like, well, what was on your mind when you were writing it? And and what is on your mind when you're writing this next one? And again, not heavy handed and everything isn't, it doesn't have to be a metaphor for something, but just be aware and, and, and be, um, proud of what you've experienced and be prepared to, you know, to infuse your actual art with those, with those things, observations, experience, ideas. And so Ghoul in the Cape feels absolutely to me like the curtain has parted again and here is the first of act two. Okay. Well, I, we spoke last time about how you, you want to try endlessly try new things, but you also want to feel like the same writer who is writing these words. Yes. So it makes sense then that there is a bit of a threshold between your previous stuff and this one, because whilst it doesn't feel like a different writer, it feels like a very, very different kind of project. Um, And we already mentioned these two extremes to your personal kind of, I don't know, creative spectrum. Like There's the looseness of Unbury Carol versus the rigour of of Bird Box and things like that. And Ghoul and the Cape has set a whole new extremity beyond Unbury Carol. But I was wondering when I was reading it, did you write it like that? Did you basically sit down and let the words and the events and, and the road and the journey just pour out of you and like, who knows what happens next? Or or is that actually a trick? And did you actually plot the hell out of it? 
man, I love talking to you because you just have a sense. You have a sense when you're reading. Um, you have like a sixth sense about these things, just like our last interview. And I said that to you then. Um, is this was one of the only books I've ever outlined. Um, and I felt that I had to. I, I was staring at it. I understood the scope of it. And when I say outline, I don't, I don't mean that, you know, in, you know, in every scene, knowing what happens in every beat, but you understand, like, we want this and we want the, uh, the cowboy graveyard and this will be followed by the limousine that pulls up at the foot of the mountains and, and like these kind of like really uh, mapping this thing out. And the reason why was I understood the scope. And I also understood that if I got halfway through a book of this, a story of this size and didn't know where I was going, that could be overwhelming, absolute, like sinking, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you get to the middle of a 200-page story, and you're kind of like, uh, oh, boy, I hope I know how to lead this to the ending I have in mind or whatever, if, if you're a pantser, right, which I typically am. But the word count for Ghoul in the Cave was about 1,000 a day rather than What's typically like, you know, 2,500, 3,000. Bird Box was 4,300. Carol was 5,300. Ghoul in the Cape was 1,000 a day. And the reason why was, yes, I understand that I could write 4,300 a day, but that got me to the end of Bird Box. Could I have maintained that for four, five, six times the length of Bird Box? I don't know that. But I do know that I could maintain about 1,000 a day. So those two things were in place for me. Um, A smaller word count. Just, just like you would run slower in a marathon than you would in a in a 5K. Um, lower word count and some, not the most detailed outlining, but outlining, yes. You're right. Like what you sense, that question that you had, um, because I, and I understand why you're asking. I mean, it feels like the most free, free-floating, you know, uh, book I have, but no, this one had an outline. Well, that's very cool because it does feel like a book where you embark on this journey with these characters and it, it feels, and, and you could take this as, a, as an insult. I don't mean it that way, but it feels like at no point do you, the writer, have any more idea what they're going to meet next than they do. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you've pulled that trick off off quite well. Before we move on to the details, one thing I will say is that you mentioned at the start that it's like a you know like a, like a catapult, uh, like a slingshot. Th- th- this meeting in the bar, and and that works both as you know the impetus for the central plot but the, the book itself feels like a, a slingshot or it, perhaps a better metaphor is a scattergun to allow you to explore all kinds of different ideas so you go off on these quite lengthy substantial philosophical discourses and, and as you say that that's not to make it sound heavy-handed at all but you take in things like you know what is the real value of money um, and, and and stuff like that. There's one entire section late in the book where you have a, a, a kind of story nestled within itself about how the Statue of Liberty came to be where it is today. Did it feel like you'd basically got a book that gave you the scope and the space to explore things that could have almost been their own thing? Do you know what I mean? Was it like, oh, I can finally put all this stuff in. I've got a vehicle now to explore these things. Yeah, 100%. I... So I have a friend named James Henry Hall, and, and this book is dedicated to him and John Taff, and, and you see in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And James and I um, meet up and we, we challenge each other typically, right? Uh, James also filmed a short film of one of my short stories, a Ben Evans film, it's called. Um, 
and and we've challenged each other to some pretty wild stuff before, like five novels in five months, a short story a week for six months, you know, just crazy stuff. And we were talking about, hey, man, I think it's time we start writing our, our like, you know, a big book. And we both had bigger ideas. This was mine and he had his. And through the course of writing Ghoul in the Cape, I would write him things like you're saying right now. I'd be like, hey, man, I'm really discovering that through these through these guys in this story, like I I actually can tell this other story, the story about the guy who believed himself to be the last person um, uh, people become friends with before they die. That guy, right? The Cowboy Graveyard and Liberty in Pieces. And not that Ghoul in the Cape was um, is a collection of short stories. It's it's totally not. But you're right. Like all doors were open for any story idea, for any philosophical take, for any emotional, like you felt like going for it, go for it. Um, I would absolutely say that I found the vehicle. And, and it's almost bizarre to use the word vehicle and then think of Medley and think that she really does sort of epitomize exactly what we're talking about right now. Medley, for listeners, is is the car that Ghoul in the Cape um, drive across country eventually. And Medley is called Medley because it's made up, she's made up of um, uh, no, no two parts match, even on the dashboard, the wheels, no, nothing matches on this car. It's a total Frankenstein car. And I think that Medley sort of epitomizes what you're asking right now. Like this book is, is no two parts match and the rear window is stained glass and the steering wheel is half this, half that, but it's still a unified vehicle that, 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 that is going forward. And yes, I absolutely felt, who did I feel like liberated inside there? Not, not that I didn't, don't feel liberated or didn't with bird box or, or a black man wheel or this was different though. This was like, um, like when you, when you're at a party, when by the time you leave, you're like, I was on tonight. That feeling of like, I was, I was, I was funny tonight. I was, I was like, I was nice tonight. I had a great time with John and Tim and, and Karen tonight. I had a great time with my friends and family tonight. That's what this whole book felt like writing. It felt like I was on today, not in writing, but in like personality, in mindset, in like who you are and like where you were at while you're working on it. That's why in many ways it's um, quite a difficult book to interview about because there's that, that feeling of like, well, what would the word be? Kind of, kind of effervescence almost, you know, like you are firing on all cylinders. There are so many competing ideas and voices and things that it's like, what strand do you pull on? Do you know what I mean? It's like, so, so, yeah. so let, let's see where this goes as a conversation. Let's start off with one of the weirdest, but, but mock and weird is a big thing. I mean, some of the things in this book are downright weird, you know, verging on the surrealistic in parts. The Nought, this agent of disaster, you use the phrase, you know, celestial entity. And, and it's come to it's come to eat America, but it, it may not mean eat in the way that people necessarily think. This this is not Godzilla. And and the Nought and its various agents on Earth are, are very different from our usual idea of, of a great malevolent evil. It's a striking idea. Where did you get the idea? Because I don't see any any obvious genesis for that. Uh, you know, I it started with the cape, and I feel like that's probably obvious, right? It started with um, an eccentric who had knowledge of something, but wasn't broken by it, um, was put into motion by it. And there was something about him and coupling him with 
the talent. I mean, you can almost, if I were to make like a figurine from this book, I would make the cape and, a, and, the, and with a little telescope he comes with, right? Mm-hmm. Even though he doesn't carry one around, which now I suddenly wish he kind of did actually, but, but he doesn't carry one around. But he does have many moments with one. And something about that coupling, you see, the cape to me is sort of, um, I don't want to say like the, the optimist, but he's, he's momentum, he's forward progress, he, but without being naive. See, that's really the whole, the whole root of the whole thing to me is that optimism is not the same as naivety. And I mean, with naivety, you don't know the score. With optimism, you do, but you choose to move forward. And that's, that difference there is infinite. And the cape is an, is optimistic in um, uh, what he decides to do, what he tells people. He's like mindful, he's kind, yet he knows he's aware of this unfathomably dark thing that's, that's happening. And so it started with him. And it started with the, with the sense of like, I am seeing this thing through a telescope, right? Meaning it's, it's far off, but it's coming. And I need to... Had I need to outrun this while also doing all I can in the most mindful way of telling everyone I encounter what I'm seeing. And, and that doesn't mean me. I'm talking about the cape. Mm-hmm. And so that was it. It started with a vision of him. It kind of, if I really think where it really started, I think it started with him and um, Wendy looking through, uh, remember when they were in her apartment. I think, it, I think the actual genesis was there coupled with, the um, hurried um, escape from New York with him and, and, and Ghoul. And I think those were just sort of the, the earliest, um, like nebulous sort of um, images and scenes to, to start with. Well, I'm loath to kind of spoil too much the, the true nature of the naught, because I think it's such a, a kind of neat idea, but it's quite difficult to talk about Ghoul and the Cape without talking about them to some degree. So all I'll say is this. I think this this leaves things oblique enough. Um, the Nor and its agents, Ghost Star and all that kind of thing, they take away something from humanity, don't they? They, they take away our our passion and our romance and our, our yeah. joy in a way. Let, let's leave it there without spoiling it any further. Yeah, I think we can say that much. Um, and against that against that nullifying of the essence of humanity stands our main players, Ghoul and the Cape. Now, you often hear authors talk about characters who arrive fully formed or who impose their presence on the story. That's very much the vibe I get from this pair, like like they stepped into your imagination and they just grabbed the wheel. Yep, 100%. Um, Absolutely, Ghoul and the Cape both fully formed. I saw Ghoul already wearing the leather jacket he eventually gets later uh i saw the i mean man i saw the look in the cape's eyes you know um i saw fully fully formed the capes like like i could see his hair like his silver hair as if he was like standing in the room above me like telling me we need to go and and then i also saw myself as him looking down at ghoul a sort of disfigured um skeptical (laughs) interesting new yorker in a leather jacket saying hey we need to go to him I also, Sissy came to me fully formed. Val Sherry came to me fully formed. Medley, um, maybe Cadaver Jack was a bit more, I didn't know exactly what to do with him at first, but once I had him in the car, I, I, uh, uh, he made a lot of sense to me too. But the point is, uh, almost every character, um, the Celestial Man, the Stalker, uh, Ghost Star. Um, I remember I called 
part one ghost star before really even knowing what ghost star, who it was exactly or what it was. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of this was like that. And I don't want any of this to sound to a listener like, you know, like Paul McCartney saying, I just woke up with yesterday, you know? Um, But there was some of that. There was some of just like, like I was tapped into something. It was like all the writing I had done before got me in writing shape to tackle a bigger idea that I had for a, for a little while. And so once you were in shape, it's like, you know what? I'm doing it without, without even almost announcing it. I'm running the marathon. I'm going. And then all of a sudden you're running it. And that, that's what happened here. And these Google and the Cape were like detailed already, which, is, which makes it a little odd to see them on the cover because like they look a little different, obviously, than what I, than what I saw in my head, right? Yeah. But it also makes sense that, that their faces would be on the cover because like you're saying, they did come to me in detail, like fully formed. Yeah, the guy on the cover looks a little bit like a young Jack Palance. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a little more like Samuel Beckett with like a black turtleneck, like more, you know, but not exactly that either. But <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to Samuel Beckett. But to, to stay with this central pairing. So I was kind of thinking about this and, and, and wondering if I was even right. But but normally, I think in a central pairing, in, in a buddy cop movie or any kind of, you know, midnight run, any kind of journey with two people, the, the characters tend to represent contrasting characteristics, perspectives, ideals. They tend to make up a whole person. You know, you get one who's cynical and one who's innocent or one who's reliable and one who's reckless you know Riggs and Murtaugh from from Lethal Weapon you, you get my point yeah and at first that seems to be wholly the case with Ghoul and, and the Cape but for me it turns out pretty quickly not to be that way they are both actually united in the in this kind of underlying romantic nature now Cape already has his you know he's a believer he has faith he has optimism as you say Ghoul's journey is a journey to find that romance or to find the value of that romance. But it, it does feel like that sense of romance and, and, and awe, that that is the beating heart of these characters and the book. Yeah, uh, 100%. Yes. Um, and not to lose that and to recognize that and to maintain that. I mean, you could... One could argue that that's literally what the entire novel is about, is that is that uh, Ghost Star is here to eat the romance. The, the, these two are like, no, where they're warding it off and saying no. Yeah, and then you could equate that to, uh, I don't want to equate it to me, but like a person like aging, 30s, now I'm in my 40s. Like, you know, at some point, does, does this romance, this awe, this wonder, this um, arrested development, does this go away? Is Ghost Star you know, eventually is age coming to eat all that. And, and me like the Cape, a uh, ghoul in the Cape, like, no, 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 you're not, not yet. Not on my watch. <laughs> and that's for lack of a better phrase. They are sort of guardians of that romance that you're talking about. Absolutely. Well, there's one sentence in it. You said that could be what the entire book is about. And I actually highlighted a sentence. There is a moment late in the book where, when ghoul sees the ocean for the first time. And all the way through the book, Cape has been dragging him on, you know, trying to make him believe. Because Goo is this kind of, he's kind of almost institutionalized by New York City. It's like a world unto itself for him. Yeah. Um, and then he leaves and, and sees the grandeur of the, of the nation and how much, you know, of a, of a, of a blank canvas and a tapestry it is. And he, and he learns to have, um, he learns to have an imagination almost, right? And then, and then late in the book, Goo 
this small minded man at the start sees the ocean for the first time and he he stops to look at it despite this imminent threat looming behind him and and cape hurries him along and says this is no time for all and ghoul responds and i highlighted this it's always time for all isn't that what we're running for to retain our all and it feels like that is the bright heart of the story that if you could distill the entire book into one sentence it's that there should always be time for all yeah uh, that's weird. I feel I feel kind of weird. Um, I just said I just uh, cr- cried a little over here. I know that's going to sound real weird to your audience, but um, wow, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm a little emotionally uh, a little emotionally moved right now. Um, cool on you, Ghoul, for saying that. Yes, that is absolutely the heart of the entire novel. I, I think there's um another moment like that would be in the book would be for me when um, when the cape is uh, pointing out uh, the constellations to Ghoul and Ghoul's yeah. on top of Hadley. And, and he's saying that like somebody came up with these constellations that, you know, man came up with these constellations. The ones we come up with are no less legitimate than those. We're just men. Let's come up. What do you see in the sky? And, you know, just because the world has said, called it Leo, um, for this long and, and Orion for this long. And, and those three stars mean that to you because of that. What do you see here, Ghoul? And they start, and then I think it's the Cape starts um, uh, pointing out ones that he's found in the sky. And, th- and that's a similar thing to me as, as what you brought up. Or, or how about this? That similarly runs through the book. Is that, that sense of like, um, anything that's been done has been done by man. Therefore, we can do anything. I mean, for a book about a man made entirely of blood um, and the eating of the nation, it's emphatically optimistic, isn't it? Like, there's never a point really where these characters feel hopeless, I notice. And to to maintain that for 700 pages, even in one particular scene set in a prison, which is just nightmarish, there is always a sense of forward propulsion. You know what's interesting, man? Uh, Years ago, I... The High Strong, the band I play in for listeners, we played a show in Chicago and we had a poet named Thax Douglas open the show for us. And it was amazing. Um, this guy was awesome. And afterwards, him and I, after the show, him and I got to talking and I was like, I'm trying to write like novels. And, you know, this was a while ago, right? And, and I finished like one and two, but like, I, I, I really want to write like the, the great, like optimistic horror novel. And, he, <laughs> and or no, I said optimistic novel, I think at the time. I just want to write the great, like optimistic novel. And he said, he goes, isn't just the act of writing at all optimistic? And I was like, shit. Yeah. Wow. You're right. Facts. He's like, you, you can write about anything. Anything you write is optimistic because it implies that there's meaning. It implies also possibly that you might have a reader. It implies that you're no million things, right? The act of doing it is optimistic in and of itself. Okay. Yes. You are right. Facts. Totally. Flash forward 15 years. And I want, I want, I want to bring him this book now. Facts. This is what I meant that day. And thank you for what you said. And here, and here's like the book in exchange. Um, no, it isn't common, I suppose, in a horror novel. You know what I think of is like, I think of like um, Don Quixote. I think that comes screaming to mind. Um, at least at see, it's hard to talk about the Cape without spoilers, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it really, really is. Um, but at first, let's say he seems real. Quixote, Don Quixote, right? And 
there's a playfulness to that character, yet like a severity that I was hoping would be in the cape as well. And I think eventually like Ghouls sort of gives him more, the more, um, the earthy, more grounded that I was like looking for. Cause I didn't want, I didn't want it to like fly off the rails. Like, like um, I love Tom Robbins in terms of like how skilled he is, right? Mm-hmm. And how imaginative he is. But oftentimes his absurdity can be kind of like hippie goofy, right? He's awesome. Like he's truly like from a writing standpoint, like geez, man. And from a, a pace and, and, and imagination and even, even the books are great. But every now and then he'll hit a beat or something where you're just like, oh man, that's like hippie goofy, you know? And I, and I was trying to be aware of that with this. Like, hey, this is, this is a propulsive, bright, optimistic story despite all these horrors let's try not to cross that line ever into like straight up like high on goofiness well yes right i completely agree it never feels like the stuff that is happening isn't weighty you know what i mean but it it, it is absurdist is is a funny word to use because absurdist for me always is kind of like damning with faint praise because I don't, the minute you start getting absurd, it, I think things lose meaning or they lose, yeah. you know, emotional meaning at least. Unless, in, unless you look at it as like a legitimate sort of a school of thought, right? Like absurd, like an absurdist school of thought, like an artist. And then you can see it like, like you can say Dolly is an absurdist. And then you're like, ooh, there's some weight there. Yeah. And I think, but I think absurdism in that regard, I mean, I'm no art critic. What the hell do I know? But it feels like that is inextricable from metaphor. You know, that absurdism only only really for me has has a deeper meaning if you are if it's an allog if you are pro- providing an allegory for something that you are taking apart or satirizing or something like that. Right. Right. There was a point early in this novel when um they basically they get on a train and they, they immediately get kind of taken uh, and kidnapped by bandits. For a, a short few kind of pages, I was like, oh no. Is this going to be one of those books where just random shit happens to these characters, and but it's so random that none of it matters? Uh huh. And that's not the case at all. Because as I said, you managed to make me fucking cry over a car being abandoned, man. You know what I mean? It's like somehow you crowbar real emotional stuff into a book, which if I was to just describe the events of that book, they would sound ridiculous. But you you crowbar emotion into them somehow. And I think, again, it's all to do with that awe and the pursuit of of, of what really matters in life, I suppose. Yeah, uh, amazing to hear everything you're saying right now. And I, and I think, um, uh, what's it called? You know, what's the right phrase? Like, to be weird for weird's sake is almost like something, you know, like a young, and justifiably, like a young writer, really young writer might do for the sake of, like, um, stretching their wings, right? Yeah. And, I, and I was definitely aware of that of that this whole time and it's interesting you brought up the funny money sequence because it's you know the minute you bring in these like bandits right it's almost like oh wait a minute wait a minute like now now we're just like you're saying absurdism for weird sake or like 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 a book called like captain fish's like saturn adventure so you're like oh shit what is this right i was absolutely aware of all that definitely of that line and I, i to be honest with you I almost, for the listeners, I almost feel like now I'm talking about it too much because like, it, it really isn't even that close to that line in a lot of ways. Um, but like you said, if you just described the events to someone, someone might think that it is. So that's a fun thing. Um, and I think that Pearl, which is, a, geez, is a much different book than this, 
but is also a diff- difficult book to like explain to people uh, or to pitch. But hey, maybe what we should be trying to do as writers is to take things that are difficult to pitch and and write great books with those ideas rather than uh, brilliant, you know, log lines and then and, and write like a sort of soulless thriller, right? Yeah. And I'm not ripping on anyone. But I would take the former in that exchange any day. And and Ghoul in the Cape and Pearl are both not easy to like when when I'm at like Thanksgiving or something, oh, what's your new book about? <laughs> like I'm like I'm, <laughs> and then imagine that in like a family setting with like, you know, more conservative people and you're just like, oh, uh, uh two men on the run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then there's the part where the guy made a blood climbs out of Orion's belt and down the nose of Mount Rushmore and things like that. Yeah. It, yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, that, that leads me to one of the things that I kept thinking throughout that, that, you know, that sense of oddness and perspective, all that kind of stuff, because there's something about this novel that speaks of, well, another era, I suppose. It, it feels quite often like a piece of art that came out of the counterculture, you know, like it was something that was written in the cafes of Hey Ashbury or, you know, with Kerouac and Ginsburg in the rooms of the city light bookstore. Right. You know, it feels like it could have been birthed from that exact moment in literary history. And then it dawned on me when I was thinking about that, that I'm not sure I can actually recall any reference or technology that would really date the novel to the present. It's obviously, you know, in the last 50 years. But nothing in it really feels particularly like it's now. Am I wrong about that? I mean, is it set in the present day or or, or is it more flexible? You know, the there was never, um, there was no dog, dogmatic like sort of line over here where I was like, don't mention cell phones or, you know, like, like sissy shouldn't have a phone or, 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 or they don't, you know, check, they don't Google, you know, Google doesn't Google ghost star, right? <laughs> um, but at the same time, that it, there's no way I would have put that anywhere near this. I I feel like um, my answer to that would be it happens now, but in the same way that Unburied Carol happens in the Old West, right? Yeah. And what that it means like, yeah, it happens in the Old West, a parenthetical, flexible. It happens now, parenthetical, flexible. Um, I think medley, I think the capes, um, gentlemanliness, I think the, uh, the horseback, a lot of, a lot of elements in this sort of harken to like the seventies, or as you were saying, even earlier to like the, the beats. And I think that had, it's almost by nature, their, um, station, their situation crossing the country in this like fever it, it almost like says like they're just not going to end up in a place with um technology. They're not going to stay in a hotel that has it. They're, they're, they certainly don't have any on uh, of their own. Ghoul doesn't even have an, another pair of clothes to change into, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it was almost like naturally there weren't that many places for it. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be picked up by someone in a car who had you know GPS or that kind of thing. But at some point, as a writer, you're kind of like that. It's not a fear of dating it. It's a fear of like. Um, uh, adding notes to a chord that don't belong. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you do get what I'm saying about the whole beat thing. Oh yeah. 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 No, well those, listen, man, those, when I was falling in love with, uh, you know, books, those like Jack Kerouac, um, there's a book, um, visions of Cody, 
where I think that there's a long part called just the tape and it's just a transcript of him and um, Neil Cassidy talking. It's literally just a transcript of them, of a tape they recorded. And I'm reading this book and he's talking so, you know, powerfully uh, about, you know, uh, fire and the fire inside people and the passion for life and living and the optimism and, 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 and threading the needle in the, you know, in a, in a crazy world. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the book, there's this like hundred pages of, of just conversation transcribed of him and his friend. And, and if, to say that that stuff didn't influence me, I mean, that's like when I was falling in love with this and then Don Quixote and then Moby Dick, which is one of my all time favorites. And mm-hmm. uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who writes like he's in a fever. And I mean, all those elements together would were definitely um, behind this one for me. Well, I think, as I said last time when we talked, I, I have this thing about America and I, I just... I love Kerouac's On the Road because I'm I'm kind of a a, a I, I never quite matured beyond being seventeen and being in love with that idea of you know the in the way that seventeen year olds are in love with Kerouac and On the Road I never quite got past that um, and you know that you know the, the ending to On the Road that thing about you know so in America and he talks he sits he talks about he senses all that raw land I think that rolls in one bulge over the West coast and all that road and all the people dreaming in the immensity of it and, and all that kind of stuff at the end of on the road, that feels how this book feels like it's a book that is, is, is about America, you know, and I've been describing it all over the place as saying it, you know, like it's like pinching for the new millennium. I, I called girl on the Cape, like a horror inflected Ulysses and all those high moments of experimental fiction kind of focusing on the experimental stuff. But then it, at the same time, it also seems to play in the same pool as the idea of the, you know, the great American novel, which is, is something much closer to my heart than like Pynchon and, and, and Beckett. Because I love the earnestness of the, the great American novel. And, and the whole concept of that is really open to in, interpretation. And I don't know what the phrase the great American novel means to you. But to me, it always goes back to journeys and to this kind of panoramic view of the nation as both a singular, vast entity, but also this fragmented and localised and idiosyncratic amalgam of things. And I'm talking a lot here, sorry, but it feels like Ghoul and the Cape really embraces that. Yep, uh, absolutely. And at some point, um, shamelessly too, I think at some point when you when you start... Um when you start recognizing that or sensing that's what you're attempting to do, there was a moment of like, Hey, okay. If that's what this is, don't, don't shy away from that. Don't, don't be embarrassed by that. Cause like, I think that before writing Ghoul in the Cape had somebody said, um, Oh, you're going to go write the great American novel or something. Right. It'd be like, Oh no, no, I'm, I'm going to write this, this story, you know? And now, now I would be like, maybe, maybe I am. Maybe I am. And maybe you are. And, and I think that there was a certain shamelessness to that. And I also think I love your description just now of America. And then I would equate that same exact thing to the individual and your place in there, your, the vast uncharted land in yourself, the fragmented mm-hmm. uh, idiosyncrasies in yourself, um, your place in like you as a fragmented, hopeful and despairing being in a, it's almost like a, a, a troika doll. You inside of America um, is like is like those dolls inside of each other, and I think um, 
for me, especially if you take into account the last four or five years, six years, maybe now, um, there was some sense of like navigating darker waters than, I mean, there's definitely a sense of navigating darker waters than, than normal. And at some point it became, Hey, listen, man, like this era may pass. It may not, but if it does pass or, or if it doesn't, you are going to look back and had you not addressed how you, how it made you feel in some form, whether that's abstract or literal, had you not addressed what it feels like to be navigating these freaking waters right now, you are going to regret that. It doesn't mean that you need to like, hey, man, I need to write down my, you know, my uh, manifesto, right? Like, I'm going to put my flag here on my hill. No, 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 no. But also... Maybe now isn't the time, you know, to to ignore that or to intentionally. Oh no, no, no! I don't want. I don't want to write a a book that may uh, suggest, you know, uh, how I feel about the modern times or be political or or, mm-hmm. or these these elements. Like in, in the same way that at some point I was like, "Hey, man, don't be embarrassed to write and you know, like an American novel." Also, don't be embarrassed to like address how you feel right now in America. And I think that when those layers of like potential shame and, and embarrassment and, and uh, self-consciousness, once those capes were like removed from me, when those chains were removed, it was like, all right, you know, anything goes. And it just started to breathe and, and felt so liberating because it was like, no, it was almost like a psychiatrist was in the room saying, just, just talk about it. Just seriously, dude. And then it was like, okay. I'm going to just talk about this and Ghoul in the Cape is, is a result of that. I think, you know, I would, it, I would recommend it for any writer out there right now that like the way you're feeling through all of this and it doesn't, again, it doesn't, man, it doesn't mean heavy handed. It doesn't mean that it has to be like, there was a blonde lunatic president. You know what I mean? Like, no, it doesn't have to be some like literal or quasi literal or, or everything's a metaphor for like the guys you hate or this or that. No, 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 no. Just how do you feel? in this moment in time and how do you express that through a work of art and and i mean come on dude uh the novel can be as as much a prism as you want it to be or not Mm -hmm. and so i think i would tell all all writers and i would hope that there's even some listening to this i would recommend it because it felt good and not only did it feel good but there's no denying how we're all feeling right now and so to write it down probably means that what you're going to write down is going to be infused with some um uh, insight, some emotion, some care that maybe something else you'd write right now wouldn't have. Yeah, because what you essentially do is you write a very, very, very political novel that in no way has any time for notions of left or right or who is to blame or who is the monster. It's more about the political with a small p and the kind of limiting factors that that stop us being better as a society you know, rather than who's right in this issue or who's wrong in that issue. It's way broader than that, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I I talked to Christopher Golden the other day and he said, the politics in Google and the Cape, he goes, that's not subtext, that's text. Mm. That is there. And he was like, but at the same time, this is somehow not a political novel. That's not what it's about. No one's going to come to this and pick it up and think it is attacking the left or attacking the right. I mean, there is an element to which it is a life-affirming book about kindness and about treating your fellow man with compassion and decency. So that's some of the GOP ruled out. You know what I mean? (laughs) 
everyone else. It, it, it's it's kind of a, it's not but basically it's not really about politicians. I mean, the president's a bit of a prick in this, but it's more about I suppose how again going back to the optimism. It's about how people are, are decent and and when this when the political architecture is taken away everyone's kind of doing their best and then this thing yep. comes along and, and overwhelms them and, and they are at its mercy and that's where there's sort of some quite right metaphors that i won't get into because i don't want to spoil the whole ghost star thing but it's a great metaphor for for the things that divide us rather than sort of like the left or the right being the villains it's about how everyone is kind of a victim of these much bigger forces almost like gravitational forces above and beyond us it kind of takes politics and makes it a cosmic horror story yep yeah i think uh sissy is somehow a great um turned out to be a great character for me to toy with in that way because of her parents and her relationship to her parents when she says to, and i guess it's kind of spoilery but not really when she tells them like you know they're like and your parents and she's like oh i lost them and they're like oh we're sorry she's like no i lost them to the tv <laughs> yeah. and, and it's kind of like uh, oh and for a moment you could be like that's funny and then you're like oh wait a minute that that's yeah that's actually not funny no mm. that, that is that kind of thing happens doesn't it and she became sort of uh uh the um not a victim but i was able to because of her parents and why she was out on the road alone to begin with you know um it gave me like something to play with also what she gave me um, and I definitely am, don't want to like say too much here, but is that sense of um, uh, what am I trying to say here? No, I can't say. It. I can't say what I was about to say without spoiling this. So <laughs> sorry, listener. Just just uh, one day we'll all talk in a bar together, and um, and I'll say it then. I'll remember it. <laughs> right. Well, we'll get into the end here now. So I've got one question for you that's a little bit silly, and one that I hope y y you'll get something from. So. I've I've thrown quite a few comparisons at you, right? Um, which I think, you know, in some way do a bit of disservice to the novel because it, it, it kind of downplays the originality of the book. But, you know, comparisons help us contextualise. So, for a start, I've seen quite a few reviewers mention The Stand as a comparison piece. And I kind of get that. But I think, in reality, King's and Straub's The Talisman is a much better comparison with that kind of odd journey through this uncanny almost inexplicable america yeah um then it got me thinking about quest narratives because obviously the stand and the talisman both are right this might be really off target and weird but but i think you might find it interesting i couldn't help but see continual points of comparison with lord of the rings oh give me uh give me more well you've got these interspersed poems and folk songs throughout you oh, know yeah. like yeah, yeah, which yeah, are kind of yeah. like when tom bombadil breaks into song you know halfway yeah. through the yep. there's that sort of stuff there's all of all of that um there's the, you know there's the great quest in itself undertaken by two people within a fellowship right and then even the well i was gonna say even but particularly there is a scene in which ghoul rescues the cape from this particularly grim moment of imprisonment and that just made me think of sam like coming into his own, rescuing Frodo from Kerith Ungol in um, when he's taken by Shelob and all that stuff. Like, was any of that? 
in the back of this that you were writing your own quest narrative and it was Lord of the Rings playing a part? Or am I just kind of really wider than mine? No, no, uh, no, 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 no. So the answer is no. No, I wasn't thinking of it in those terms. But I also wasn't thinking of the Stan or Talisman either. Although at one point um, I remembered, what's it called in Talisman? Uh, the Territories? Yeah, right? the Territories, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, God, I love that. I fucking love that name mm-hmm. for what it is. And I remember that crossing my my, my, my mind at some point in there. I definitely would put Goon the Cape more in the school of Lord of the Rings than I would the Stand or the Talisman even. Um, there's even the, you know, well, I guess that's in those in those books too. I was about to say like the Cotet, right, of, of the Dark Tower, right? Yeah. Sissy, Medley, Cadaver Jack, Val Sherry, um, Ghoul the Cape. Uh, even uh, Mary Finn would fit into that. Um, but I would definitely side more with Lord of the Rings. But what I, I don't want a listener to think by that is that the book is more fantasy than horror. It's not, but it's also not more horror than fantasy. It's not. I actually feel like this is closer to what you said about the beats than anything else. And the reason why I think that is because the beats for me were more about spirit than about plot, than about, um, uh, you know, the, the inner gears of like a book. It was more about the spirit and, and the, in the life of the thing. And I feel like Ghoul in the Cape is that also. So the fact that there's fantasy, the fact that they're, yeah, sure. I guess there's sci-fi, the fact that there's horror elements. Okay. But this is the closest that, that to me of the things you mentioned so far is more is the beats and, and that counterculture versus fantasy or horror. Yeah, completely. And by my Lord of the Rings comparison, I don't mean anything to do in the kind of mise-en-scene or the, the, even the events or, or the tone. It's more about that sense of just the, the, the heroism of these two little people standing against this almost insurmountable odds. There's something in their dynamic together that made me think of Sam and Frodo really strongly. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I, I think that... Um, let's have fun for that with that for one second because I think that... Um, the, in a sense, God, I can't fucking talk about the cape without spoiling it. But I'll just suffice to say, sure, Frodo and the cape, okay? I, I have so much to say about that. But um, but Sam and Ghoul have a um, uh, character journey uh, uh, to go through that maybe even eclipses the capes and Frodo's in, in certain ways and in, in how it resonates with you as a reader. You know, somebody pointed out to me, um, or, they, or thought they were, that in... When so the title is Ghoul in the Cape, right? And the N has the little the dash on it, the thing on it. And they said you're supposed to put that on the left side of the N because that that's how you know that's that's the abbreviation for and. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wait, hold on. And Paul Miller and I had a long discussion about this. How in a, in a hidden way the title actually says to you because by putting the apostrophe on the right side of the N, it implies there are more letters to the word on that side. And then we. Paul and I had a long discussion that this bizarre, the keeping that suggests that this title says ghoul, not the cape <laughs> or, or ghoul, N-A-U-G-H-T, ghoul, not okay. the cape. Yeah. And, and it was this fun thing where it was like, wait a minute, this is kind of like a sneaky way of saying this book, this story, you think it's the cape story and, and you're right, but also this story is ghouls, not the capes. And and like that sounds like a silly like little thing to point out, but it goes with your Sam thing kind of in that Google might be at first perceived to be like, a, a, I guess, momentarily as a, um, uh, a sidekick. 
But yeah. no, 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 no. This, this, this is like you know his journey as much as anyone's. Mm-hmm. Completely. Well, yeah. I thank you for indulging that kind of quite strange comparison. Right. Going to finish off with a question now. And right, I I know that I've talked a lot tonight. Sorry, listeners. I know, I know you don't listen to this for my voice, but I, I, some of these questions have been quite quite hard to articulate in simple ways. So this is my my grand thesis now. Um, right. When we last spoke, you talked about the the early days of your writing career, right? When you were you were on tour with your band and you were writing on the bus and you were, you said, you said you were broke as hell, but happy as hell. And you, you use this phrase, gorgeously drunk. And and you painted this idea of yourself as somebody who was still in love with life and art and, and all of those things. Now, I want to finish off with that in mind by talking about my very favorite sentence in the entire novel. And in a book of that length, the fact that one sentence rings out must mean something. There is a sentence that the, the, the cape says to someone who really needs to hear this. And he says, reserve harsh judgment for those who think of teen dreams as chimeras, because that was the real you. My favorite sentence. I'm going to write on my wall. Right. So it's a book about keeping dreams and joy alive. Tell me, now that you are successful, award-winning author, Josh Malaman with films on Netflix, do you still have access to that same joy? And is this book your attempt to distill that for the rest of us? Yes. When we were in Interlaken, a student asked me, um, how has is, how is, um, all this changed you? And, and I was like, oh, it hasn't. Wait a minute. And in front of everyone, it was kind of like a joke about having a mental spiral in front of everyone. But I was like, wait a minute, but it has to have, hasn't it? And we all talked about like, yes, it, just by going through anything, anything. Had nothing happened, you would be different than you were before. And how has this changed you then? Oh, my. And it was this kind of this funny identity crisis in front of everyone. But the truth of it is like you had, I have to be changed by all this. And to me, the most important thing and has always been the most important thing to me is to maintain wonder, joy, awe, enthusiasm, momentum, love, mindfulness. Um, to me, those are the real like barometers of intelligence. Of um, Those are the people that I want to talk to. Those are the people that I want to marry. I want to marry Allison. She's like that. Um, not... Just give me a second on this because this is a really big topic for me. And if I if I told you this story last time, then oh well, I'm going to tell it again. I guess is that when I lived in New York, um, I had a moment in where uh, all the bandmates were upstairs. We were renting this loft space, and they were all upstairs, and I was downstairs, and there was like a party going on up there, and I was you know already writing songs, and we were recording them, and everyone's like on drugs and drunk up there and I'm in the basement where all of our gear and recording area was. And I kind of said to my, and I was trying to write books and failing at that point, failing, meaning not finishing. And I said to myself, I was like, listen, man, I was alone. And I was like, you have a million distractions right now. You have friends, um, uh, uh, sex, drugs, um, music, art, New York city being broke. Um, if there's success here, that's a distraction. If there's failure, not finishing things, that's a distraction. There's a million things that are going to happen to affect how you feel about writing. 
and art. And you need to right now in this basement in New York City, you need to put art in a safe spot in your head. Know the combination, lock that thing, put it away out of reach of any distraction, whether that be success, failure, um, sadness, sorrow, love, madness, whatever it is that has to always be accessible to you and always in, in, a, in, a, um, in an unvarnished space. And I didn't just like imagine that and then go do 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 back to like to the party. I, I put it there. I actually put it there. And so when the high strung were like touring and we're on the road and it's like, oh, I don't where, where am I going to find time to write? Well, I got I'm going to have to write on in between cities and oh, I'm too tired. You know, you know, later these days, let's say, you know, you're doing all the like an interview and, and this and you're, and you're leaving town for this or that. When are you going to write? Well, you find the time to do it. It's always our art for me in writing has remained in this untouched, joyful place. And so I, I do think that Ghoul in the Cape is almost like defiantly me, just in my own little, my own little world in my own little way, defiantly saying, you know, it's like a middle finger to distractions, to the things that might make somebody sad, that might make somebody bitter, that might make somebody less wondrous, that might remove any, you know, what I consider to be a very um, beneficial arrested development. And it's almost like a middle finger to like all that to say like, just in case you thought that this stuff was gone, it's more here now than it ever has been. Let's head west. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that is a great place to finish it. All that's left to ask you is my two standard questions. You've asked these before. You may have different answers. Um, can you recommend a book for us? Yes, absolutely. Elvira's autobiography is brilliant. Um, I know this seems like an odd um, recommendation Not um, at all. in this setting. I no, okay. Well, I didn't, you know, a lot of, I, you know, right, of course, anybody who reads uh, fiction would also love her book too. Um, and also horror. She, man, this is a good book. It's, there's just stuff in there. Like I really related to her. In fact, it's the perfect recommendation on the heels of what we're talking about right now. There's this thing about her voice in this book where if, if by the end of that book, if you don't feel like following your dreams and putting your all into what you want to do, then like that's on you. It, it's all there to be like crazy inspired by, but there's also some like dark matter in there. Like some things that she experienced some like close calls to maybe even worse things. Um, it's the real deal. And I know you've seen like there was hype about um, her, the book for numerous other reasons, but honestly, the best thing about it is just like her voice and, and like, it's super inspirational. So yours truly Elvira, absolutely readers uh, check that one out. That's a brilliant recommendation. And lastly, I, I asked you last time, what truly scares you? You told us it was essentially going mad and then getting better to be left with the detritus of what you've done. Is there anything else that comes to mind that has really scared you either recently or, or whatever? Yeah. I mean, just in a general way, and this is going to sound probably cheesy compared to that last one, but uh, possession movies. So, so just <laughs> maybe this is something a lot of people can relate to. Me. I can, Josh. I can. <laughs> okay. I don't know what it is. I can, I can watch anything else. And I watch like stalker movies and she's like freaking out. I'm like, hush. Or, or mm -hmm. scream, she's like freaking out. And I'm like, no, this isn't, this isn't scary. This is fun, you know? 
demons, possession movie. And, and dude, it's almost similar to the last thing I said, because it's like, it's like losing yourself, losing control of yourself for mm-hmm. a second. It really is similar. And it could be the worst possession movie in the world. It could be terrible, cheesy, dumb. When that thing's over, I'm like leaving the lights on. And I always ask like at like three in the morning, four in the morning, there's always this moment of like, Hey, Allison, will you, you don't have to like stand in the bathroom, but will you stand like outside the bathroom while I go, (laughs) just come with me to the bathroom. And like to this day, she's like, dude, like, are you seriously this scared? And I'm like, just, just come stand, just stand by the door. My listeners have heard me talk enough about my own fear of possession movies, but I quite weird bit of synchronicity. In the last episode, I spoke to a a guy called Richard McLean Smith, who has a podcast called Unexplained. I think you like it a lot, Josh. It's it's basically half our episodes. He tells really kind of literary narrative versions of true weird events, things that have happened, weird mysteries from history and stuff like that. But he talks about a case the one that haunted him. Um, it's a true story about a guy called Michael Taylor who um, who basically murdered his his girlfriend or wife brutally because he claimed he was possessed and had no memory of doing it. And and that's a true story. And, and that case brings together your two greatest fears because one, he went crazy and then they had yeah. to pick up the pieces. And two, he was possessed. So... Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Michael Taylor. Have a listen to that. That'll, that'll cheer you right uh, up. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going anywhere near that. Thank you. No. <laughs> right. Well, listen, you know what? This is this has been a completely optimistic, upbeat chat, considering it's a horror podcast. But um, for those who are lucky enough to get their hands on, on an early release, one of the thousand copies of Ghoul and the Cape, you are in for an absolute treat. If you get that book and you listen to this show, let me know what you think of it. For everyone else... Speak to your libraries because this book really has distilled down for me what we all need to keep in mind about fuck Instagram, forget, you know, the endless 24-7 news channels, basically get in a car and, as you said, head west. There is There are things to be seen and life to be lived. And I want to uh, throw in that um, thanks for doing this and thanks for having me. The It's not the easiest, and we've said this a couple of times, not the easiest book to discuss, and so I think we did a pretty damn good job of hitting on some stuff. But at the same time, like like I said before, I would, man, I would love if you were up the road. I'd be like, all right, let's go record another three hours at the bar. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get to like StokerCon or something next year. So if I see you there, Josh, yeah. I'll buy you a drink. Uh, yeah, sounds amazing. Well, Josh Malaman, once again, thank you for talking scared. Thank you. That Malaman, what a guy. He's effervescent. He fizzes. He's overwhelmingly inspirational. And the beautiful thing, as I hope you gathered, is that Ghoul and the Cape takes that inspiration as its subject, not just its context. So it makes for an optimistic, revitalising read, even if there are haunted prisons, men made entirely of blood and an entire country being devoured. At a time when the pandemic is bang back in the news, depressing us all, and when, on a personal level, I am struggling a little for motivation, this book and this conversation were sorely needed. I won't say it's an easy book to read. It's not actually like The Stand or even Lord of the Rings, because both of those are epic in a very comfortable way. You read them, you turn the pages, eventually you get where you're going, and you sit back and go, wow, 
Ghoul and the Cape demands more of you than that. It demands more than just endurance. At first, it demands you to be comfortable with confusion and to buy into the, frankly, batshit premise. Then it demands you to be agile with the turns of the plot that are quite unlike anything else in horror or indeed most speculative writing right now. Finally, it demands that you open yourself up to an almost childlike wonder because that awe at the world is the prize at the end of this 700-page rainbow. So yeah, demanding, not least on the arms. I, I often read in the bath and holding this beast up above the water was was quite the workout and and Josh tells me that in hardback it's even bigger such rewards though this will sit high on my most memorable reads of recent years because it speaks directly to that part of me that I think I share with Josh and that I also think I share with Rich Chismar if you go back and listen to that episode it's the part of me always looking for a reason to romanticize the world well I've gone a bit OTT there haven't I well Okay, let's talk practicalities. This book is a special edition. There are only a thousand copies. And when I last spoke to Paul at Earthling Press, he said that a good half of those have sold on pre-release. I'm actually going to put a link to Earthling's site in the show notes. I don't normally do that. This isn't an ad. I wasn't paid. But with it being a limited edition, I want as many of you to have the chance to read this book as possible because it may help in these dark times. Please, if you have read it, and I know at least some of you have, get in touch because I really want to talk about it, warts and all. Because don't get me wrong, there are issues with this book. I love it, but it's not perfect, but even the missteps are are fascinating. You can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or if you want something briefer, you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at talkscaredpod. I finally aligned those two usernames. Or, wait for it, I now have a TikTok account for the show. I've got no idea what I'm doing there. It's all shiny filters and people lip sync into things. But, you know, you've got to move with the times. In true old man fashion, though, I'm going to call it the TikTok. <laughs> anyway, I'm on the TikTok at Talk Scared Pod. And I'm lonely. I've got like 10 followers, so... Come say hi. Tell me what you think of Ghoul and the Cape or or anything else. Lastly, as I do most weeks, a big shout out to Navi Sohota and Paddy Manning. They are the latest additions to the Talking Scared Patreon family. Welcome. Grab a seat. You have a brand new bonus podcast with Stephen Graham Jones, Daniel Kraus and Aaliyah Whiteley to catch up on. Anyone else who wants to support the show and help me keep making it, you can find the link in the show notes or go direct to patreon.com slash talkscaredpod. I am endlessly grateful. Oh, and a big thanks to William Hayden, who wrote me a lovely message on Instagram this week. Thanks, man. Do appreciate it, and your suggestion has been noted. Right. Anyway, onward, into the depths of December we can all fight for a little festivity against the endless dreariness of COVID. Are we still calling it COVID-19 or is it just Omicron now, like some shite villain from a Michael Bay movie? Either way, do not let this crapness wear you down. If you're out there struggling under the sheer weight of it all, reach out to somebody, to me, if needs be. Do not be or do not feel alone. And with that in mind, and in light of the conversation you've just heard, until next week, keep...
keep your wonder, fight the good fight, name your own constellations, and if in doubt, head west. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>